Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Ang salita ng Diyos mula Genesis, ikaunang kabanata, talatang 26 hanggang 31, at mula sa aklat ng pahayag, 21 kabanata, talatang 1 hanggang 5. Pagkatapos, sinabi ng Diyos, likhain natin ang tao ayon sa ating wangis. Sila ang mamamahala sa lahat ng uri ng hayop. Mga lumalangoy, lumilipad, lumalakad, at gumagatang. Kaya nilikha ng Diyos ang tao, lalaki at babae, ayon sa wangis niya. Pinasbasan niya sila at sinabi, Magpakarami kayo para mangalat ang mga lahi ninyo at mamamahala sa buong mundo. At pamahaalaanan ninyo ang lahat ng hayop. Pagkatapos, sinabi ng Diyos, Ibinibigay ko sa inyo ang mga tanim na namumunga ng butil, pati ang mga punong kahoy na namumunga para inyong kainin. At ibinibigay ko sa lahat ng hayop ang lahat ng luntiang halaman bilang pagkain nila. At iyon nga ang nangyari. Pinagmasdan ng Diyos ang lahat niyang nilikha at lubos siyang nasiyahan. Lumipas ang gabi at dumating ang umaga. Iyon ang ikaanim na araw. Pagkatapos nito, nakita ko ang bagong langit at ang bagong lupa. Naglaho na ang dating langit at lupa, pati na rin ang dagat. At nakita ko ang banal na lungsod, ang bagong Jerusalem, na bumababa mula sa langit galing sa Diyos. Ang lungsod na iyon ay tulad ng isang babaeng ikakasal, handang-handa na at gayak na gayak sa pagsalubong sa mapapangasawa niyang lalaki. Narinig ko ang isang malakas na sigaw mula sa trono. Ngayon, ang tahanan ng Diyos ay nasa piling na ng mga tao. Mananahan na siyang kasama nila. Sila'y magiging mga mamayan niya at siya'y makakapiling na nila at magiging Diyos nila. Papahirin niya ang mga luha sa kanilang mga mata. Wala ng kamatayan, kalungkutan, iyakan o sakit sapagkat lumipas na ang dating kalagayan. At sinabi ng nakaupo sa trono, Binabago ko na ngayon ang lahat ng bagay. At sinabi niya sa akin, Isulat mo ang sinasabi ko dahil totoo ito at maaasahan. Ang salita ng Diyos. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Gemma, I need you to teach me how to say thanks be to God in Tagalog. Let's get on top of that. Yeah. Uh, if I were to ask you, what are the, uh, the various commands that God gives to Christians, right? the things that God requires of us, what are the kinds of things that might come to mind for you? Uh, I do think that for many, um, things like prayer and Bible study and corporate worship and giving, that those are the, maybe the kinds of things that would come to mind, all of which God commands in Scripture. Or maybe, though, for others, you would begin to point to the Ten Commandments, 
uh, which again is a really great one-stop shop for what God desires from his people, from his creation. But I do wonder, in all the things that you might put on that list, would you put environmental stewardship on that list? Probably not. And yet, that is actually one of the very first commands that God gives to humanity. I have found, however, that too often we lack a a theological framework for understanding what exactly that means. Uh, And the lack of theological grounding for creation stewardship not only has impacted the way that we view our relationship to the environment that we're in, but it also undermines our understanding of heaven and eternity. Now today we continue our series called The Resurrection. Um, This uh, series has been focusing in on uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus' resurrection did not happen, then nothing about what we're talking about or what any Christian believes matters. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then everything about the world and our experiences gets understood best through the lens of the resurrection, including how we relate to the environment. And so to understand this, I want to approach this topic by uh, looking at three things that you and I are. We are first, entrusted stewards. We are second, fallen usurpers. And third, we are co-heirs of restoration. I'm explain to you what I mean. First, entrusted stewards. Uh, we need to begin by considering what the Bible teaches us about our relationship to creation. Uh, To to begin, we need to state that from the Christian perspective, humanity is a special creation within creation. We are not just some aspect of nature, but rather a special creation tasked with what Genesis 1.28 tells us, which is that we are to subdue the earth. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, this portion of Scripture in Genesis 1 uh, is called or considered by many to be the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is a call to fill the earth and to discover all the latent possibilities that it holds. God created humanity to be co-creators with him. In God's good design, he gave us the earth to steward, to develop, and to harness as his special creation. And as we've already said in previous weeks, if you've been with us in this series, we are made in his image, which means that we reflect the one who is the creator of all life. And we reflect him with our own ability to also create. And this is ultimately what we call the creation of culture. It is humanity reflecting the creativity of God in the way that we create and utilize the the resources he provided for us. And this is not just a Christian thing, right? The cultural mandate is part of what it means to be human. All people made in the image of God are made in the image of God. And as a result, all people contribute something that reflects the character of God. Now, of course, we we also know that that's not to say that all people at all times and all cultures are rightly reflecting the character of God in the way that they curate the creative, uh, the resources that God has given. We are fallen creatures, which we will look at in a moment. But nonetheless, we are all, all humans, stewards, called to be co-creators with the true creator. 
And as I think about what we have done as humans, there's amazing things that we have done as co-creators with God. We have in countless ways harnessed the resources of this earth. We have discovered and learned the inner workings of God's creation. God has given us the capacity to discover math and science and the laws that govern his design. Those are raw resources that God gave to us for the curation of the earth. And we have this ability to discover these various things in creation. We have the ability to then record our findings and then pass our findings on to future generations who are then able to add to what the previous generations have discovered. We are remarkable beings as special creations of God who are able to do things and understand concepts like no other creature on the planet. But we we have to emphasize here, though, we can't miss that we are co-creators, that we are stewards of that which is not ultimately ours. I mean, this is what, uh, what, you know, what does it mean to be a steward? Well, consider what Psalm 23 tells us. It tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The entire earth is his. And we see, though, that God, again, in his good design, has allowed us to steward that which is ultimately his. Uh, In her book, Stewards of Eden, uh, Sandra Richard uh, gives a really great, kind of good and faithful biblical theology of land stewardship throughout the Bible through the lens of looking at Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, And basically what she boils it down to, and I thought this was helpful, she, she shows through this biblical theology that ultimately God is a landlord, that Israel was the renter, who was to take care of this land that God had given, and that in the same way, God is ruler and king and lord, landlord over all the earth, and we are his stewards, renters, so to speak. I mean, this is an amazing thing that God has given to us. But as we also know, Genesis 1 and 2, which is where God gives this cultural mandate, is not where our story ends, but rather Genesis 1 and 2 also leads us to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, humanity decided to rebel against the kingdom, against the rulership, against the landlordship of God. And instead of being entrusted stewards, we then became fallen usurpers of creation. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, In the Lord of the Rings saga, there is a kingdom known as Gondor. Uh, It's a kingdom that is awaiting the return of their king, if you know the story. But until that king returns, Gondor is ruled by a line of men known as the stewards of Gondor. They do not sit on the throne, and they are not the rightful king, but they are stewards of the land until this king returns. And there's this scene uh, between Gandalf the wizard and the current steward, Denethor. Now, Gandalf is demanding that Denethor act uh, in the best interest of those who he serves in, um, Gan- uh, in um, Gondor. But Denethor has heard about the coming of Aragon, who is the one who has rightful claim to the throne of Gondor. And Denethor, he's furious, insisting that he will not bow his knee to this king. 
And Gandalf responds to the steward and says that the steward has no authority to deny the return of the king. And Denethor's final fierce anger reply is, I will not bow my knee. Rule of Gondor is mine and no other. Now, Genesis 3 starts the, the trajectory of humanity that reflects the posture of Stuart Denethor. There is this rebellious rejection of the king and an attempt to usurp his throne that is not ours to actually possess. I mean, this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin at its core is the rejection of God's authority and his desire, uh, and our desire rather, to take his throne, to sit on his throne as ruler instead, ultimately to serve our own selfish ambitions and purposes. Now, God has given the good gift of co-creatorship, and instead of using that authority for the good of others and for the glory of God too often, we use it more for self-gain and self-fulfillment and selfish pleasure and wealth and power. I mean, just consider all that has gone wrong since God's gift to us as co-creator. Now, there's been many great things that we've done, but we've also perverted much of that authority God has given to us. I mean, look at the very first commands that God gives to Adam and Eve. He tells them, as part of the cultural mandate, to first be fruitful and multiply. Now, what is that? Of course, that is, of course, that is God speaking to sex. God gives sex that we might be co-creators with him. I mean, we are literally, physically able to create new life Plus, as we've talked about previously, God also gives sex as a way, of, a way of interweaving lives together. And so in this way, in the very first commands that God gives, sex was never supposed to be about self, but rather was always to be others-oriented. And if you want to hear more about that, you can hear our sermon from a few weeks ago when we actually got uh, deeper into uh, this idea uh, with, about sex. But instead of sex being others-oriented, connected to these deep covenantal promises that we've talked about previously, we become fallen usurpers. And we've made it now more about personal pleasure, self-expression, personal fulfillment. And it's even been used as a way to dominate and subjugate and to exploit. That's what it means to be a fallen usurper, entrusted with something, but utilized for selfish gain. It goes on. Look at uh, verses 29 and 30. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the, in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. God gave us dominion over the plants and the animals of the earth for the, benefit of our, for the benefit of our sustenance. But as we've said, we've taken these good things that God has given to us, entrusting us as stewards, but as fallen usurpers. We have taken our limited authority and we've ravaged the rental land that God has given to us. I mean, we have hunted animals to extinction we have polluted rivers and lakes and seas to the point that they are unusable. And though we've used creation and uh, the creation of technologies for the good of humanity, which has been great, we've also created technologies and weaponry that has also been used unjustly to conquer lands and conquer people. 
some using their authority as steward to pillage and oppress and ravage, all for selfish gain, for the acquisition of power. We took the brilliance of God giving us, that God gave us to harness the power of these, the world and its resources, and we've used it for ourselves. We've even taken the brilliance that God gave us to harness the power of nuclear energy and instead created weaponry that could literally transform the entire planet and life as we know it for every, every living thing on the planet. This is what it means to be fallen usurpers, to take what was given to us and use it for our own self-gain, our own acquisitions of power. Plus, something else that the Bible teaches, which is often not considered enough, is the extent to which all creation is held captive by our rebellious acts. You know, back to the example of Denethor as the steward of Gondor. Gondor, in his rebellion and rejection of the king, that does not only affect him and those closest to him, it also impacts everyone who is under his care in the kingdom. They are all in danger because of his rebellion. Now, we've been given dominion and authority over the earth, and so too has our rejection of the king impacted everything under our care. I've referenced this passage uh, several times in the, throughout the series, but Romans 8 makes clear to us that all of creation suffers under the weight of our fallen stewardship. Creation longs for the day that it too will be set free. I mean, here's some of these, the, the vivid words that Paul uses in Romans 8. Verse 19, let me just read this for you. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to, fu to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of decay, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only in the creation, but we ourselves, who have uh, the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In summary there, cre the creation's liberation is tied to our own. The effects of sin have created an oppression on all of creation, all, that is, all as a result of our own rebellion. And ironically, if you want to see what true submission to the king looks like, look at nature. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the trees of the forest, the stars in the sky, they all exist in the exact way that God intended them to. What they do, they do in worship to him not in rebellion, but rather as they were intended to worship. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, that they pour forth speech, that their voice goes out into all the earth. That's not just poetic language. The songs of the birds, the sound of rushing water, the rustling of leaves, the crackle of fire are songs of worship to God, their creator. As one pastor put it, put it this way, that as stewards then, we are to ensure that they continue their song. It is our responsibility to ensure that they are able to do that which God has created them to do. But because of our abuse of authority, now creation groans 
to be liberated from our rebellion. Years ago, uh, I remember someone, and I don't remember who it was, uh, but they were reflecting on the crucifixion of Jesus. If you remember, after the crucifixion, uh, or after Jesus died, rather, uh, Matthew tells us that there were these violent earthquakes that came after Jesus had died. And this person, who, again, I don't remember who it was, was reflecting on that and said something that, struck, that stuck with me. Uh, and I want to share that with you, but I also want to just say, bear in mind, it's conjecture. It's not stated anywhere in the Bible, so don't send me emails about this. But he said, in thinking about that death and those earthquakes, he said, I wonder if the earth saw that we, as humanity, had just killed its creator. And out of righteous indignation, those earthquakes were the earth prepared to destroy all of us for such wickedness. Until, of course, the Father quiets them down. Struck me. Of course, it's a figment of imagination. But it does align a bit with the groaning of Romans 8. Creation wanting to be set free from the effects of our rebellion. Our rebellion has not only impacted us personally. When we say this every week, it hasn't just impacted us personally. It's impacted all of creation as well. Because of our fallenness, our rebellion as stewards. So what then is the hope? Everything's broken. Everything is broken because we were not true, uh, true entrusted stewards. We instead became fallen usurpers of a throne that was not ours. Where then is there hope? And is there hope of some kind of restoration? And if you haven't guessed it already, there is hope. And that hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus. It's in the resurrection of Jesus that not only do we see ourselves as fallen usurpers, but now we can begin to see ourselves as co-heirs of restoration. I'll show you what I mean. You ever think about uh, the end of creation? Now, there's been plenty of movies out there that have tried to show us what the end times might look like, what it might look like for the world to come to an end. You know, I heard one... Uh, I heard someone once say that the reason why they drive a massive gas-guzzling SUV is because they don't, because they don't really care about the environment, because in the end, it's all just going to burn anyway. And that, isn't that usually how we think about the end of the earth? It comes, there's some kind of fireball that uh, is about to destroy the earth, or some volcano that's going to boil us from the inside out. It always comes back to the earth is going to burn away. So why bother caring about the earth? My question would just be, where does that idea come from that the earth is going to in some way burn away and be destroyed in that way? Well, there's several different ways that we could uh, think about it, but one of, the way, one of the places that Christians often go to to talk about the earth being burned up is 2 Peter 3. I'm going to put that up for you uh, in a moment because I want to walk through that quickly because I actually do think it helps us understand a bit more about how we're to understand the end of creation, a creation that we were called to steward. All right, so 2 Peter 3 puts it this way. It says that, uh, I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? All right, let me pause there for a second, especially look at verse 10. You know, it, that seems clear enough. 
it seems clear enough that the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. And so maybe this person that I once heard talking about their SUV, maybe they're right. Who cares how we treat the planet? It's all going to burn away anyway. But what if that's not actually what Peter in this passage is talking about? What if Peter is not actually talking about a fire of destruction that will burn away everything? I think the key to understanding what Peter is actually saying is found at the very end of verse 10, where he says that the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. There's some uh, older Bible translations like the King James Version that translates that as the earth and everything in it will be burned up. But laid bare, or as other translations say, exposed, actually gets more at the heart of what, Paul, uh, what Peter is trying to say here. The point is not that when one day when Jesus comes, the earth is going to be discarded and destroyed, but rather that the works that are done on the earth will be revealed and exposed as evil and worthy of God's judgment. One biblical commentator notes that this ought to be seen as a purging fire, a purifying fire, not an annihilating fire. That there's a purifying fire, a fire of renewal, a fire of restoration coming not one of destruction. And here's the upshot of this. This is why I, bring this, I put this in front of you. Too often, when we think about eternity and we think about heaven, we, don't, we have in mind this like distant, ethereal dreamland that we will exist for eternity. Our vision of eternity is often more shaped by cultural imagination than Scripture. The Bible actually never talks about us going to heaven like it's somewhere else for us to go. Instead, often we are given a picture of what heaven is to be like on the other, what eternity is to be like on the other side of death. And probably the most significant picture that we're given is the resurrection of Jesus. Here's why all this, here's how all this comes together and here's why it matters. Jesus did not die and just become a spirit that floats off into a distant dreamland. He dies, but then physically rises again. I mean, if heaven and eternity were some kind of spiritual dreamland, why bother with the physical? Well, it's because the physical matters. This is why in 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 6, Paul speaks of that the one who raised Jesus from the dead is also raising us up, that we are, we are talking about us experiencing a physical resurrection. Christianity is not some disembodied faith that thinks little of the, uh, the physical. We're also not a humanistic faith that thinks too highly of the current state of the physical world. Rather, for Christians, we see the brokenness but we also recognize that it's not the way that it should be, and we trust that the resurrected Christ is accomplishing something glorious for us, and that glory is a new creation, purified, where all that has been laid bare will be shown as that which is evil and worthy of God's judgment. That will be purified, and what we will be left with is a restored creation. Re Revelation our passage there in Revelation gives us a picture of that coming day, of what it means for there to be a restored creation. It says this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, they, and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He, has, he was he who seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. See, this is, this is what's important to see. Eternity is not a distant dreamland to which we go. It is a holy city that comes to us where all the creation is restored and renewed, where God makes all things new. It is the undoing of Genesis 3, where creation is finally set free. It's no longer a world of sickness and death, injustice and mourning. It's a creation freed from the consequences of our failed stewardship. That's what eternity is. That's what heaven is. It's a restored creation where the old has gone and instead the new has come. Now I want to just close with two, two thoughts in mind. Two, two ways that we need to be considering this. The first would just be this. We are all fallen usurpers. All of us. We all take God's good creation. We abuse it and we use it for our own pleasure, our own good, without consideration of the fact that it's been given to us to steward well. But we also need to recognize that this idea of being a co-heir of restoration, this idea that we'll get to, ex- uh, we'll get to experience the, this restored creation means that we need to recognize that we are mere stewards who are attempting to take the throne from our king. In order for us to see this restoration, we need to be willing to finally submit to our king, to lay down our rebellion in all the different ways that we rebel against God and his desires for us, and instead acknowledge his kingship over us. And if you're here or hearing me and you have not yet acknowledged this lordship of Christ, do so. Because to do so is to finally recognize your true place, which is a co-creator with God, yes, the steward, yes, but one who is under his authority. And so I would call you and ask you to look upon Jesus and the power of his resurrection to transform you both now and into eternity. And for the rest of us, today is not about, you know, the end times. I know it's kind of where we ended there. But rather it's about the stewardship of creation. And as we've said before over and over again, the role of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible now. And that ought to include how we think about the cultural mandate. Our role as stewards. And now there's so many different things that could be said about good stewardship, and I won't presume to know all the different ways. I do know often in these conversations about stewardship, very quickly the conversation kind of gets co-opted by debates about man-made climate change or economic policies or equitable governance, all of which are good and important debates that we need to have, but at minimum, for Christians, we ought to be on the forefront of considering what honoring our role as stewards should look like. Let's not be the person who desires solely to drive the large SUV just because they can destroy the planet because it's all going to burn. Let's not be that kind of steward. Let's consider 
what it looks like for us to honor our role as those who have been given such a great gift. A few questions to end with on this. How can I consider what is best for the earth that I've been entrusted? It's this portion of the earth that I've been entrusted. What is the best thing for our fellow humanity that share the earth with us? What is most glorifying to God and not ourselves? What best reflects the visible kingdom of God or uh, the invisible kingdom of God now? How do we make it visible? How do we make visible the restoration that's to come even now? I don't have the the answers to all those questions, but as Christians, we should wrestle deeply with those questions. So I'd call that, I call you to do so, prayerfully do so. I'm going to do that for myself as well, that we might reflect the glory of God even in the way that we exist in this good creation that he's given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, uh, for the good gifts that you've given. Lord, that you have made us co-creators with you. And Lord, we do know that there are many ways that we have uh, accomplished good things in our curation of this earth. But Lord, we also acknowledge that too often we desire to sit on the throne that is not rightly ours. And as a result, we do things and act in ways that are dishonoring to the role you've given us. And so God, would you make that plain to us? I don't know all the ways that that might um, impact how we live our lives, the way that we think about the world. But God, would you do it? And would you help us to honor you well, that we might reflect the resurrection of Jesus, not only in our own lives, but also in the ways that we care for this good earth that you have created. Lord, as we now turn to the table, I pray that it would be a reminder of restoration, the restoration that comes through the giving of your son, his death, his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.com.